Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. This morning, I also want to do something else that I would be remiss not to do. We have experienced such an outpouring of, of love and kindness on behalf of our daughter. And uh, boy, you can't imagine. <laughs> it means the world. And uh, we're thankful. Um, she's fighting a real battle. There's no question about that. We've known this battle uh, for a long time now. She's eight and a half years in with brain cancer. And they've never told us that she could get well. But you know what? I don't have to believe that report. And we are not believing that report. If the Lord takes her home, he takes her home. But we are believing for sure that he's heard our prayers. I've talked to numerous people that the Lord has laid fasting on their heart in the last couple of weeks. And I just got to tell you, that is an amazing thing. And so we, we thank you. We have received it with joy and appreciation. And Rebecca is strong. She is a strong little warrior. I will promise you that. And uh, she has not changed through this whole thing. She's even gotten deeper and sweeter as a result of it. And so it's an amazing time. And we thank you for your continued concern and prayer. Today, uh, I really could go a thousand different directions with this message, but the Lord laid it on my heart some weeks ago before I went to Africa. And uh, I've wondered if I was supposed to preach it here, and I believe that I am. And it's entitled Training for Reigning. And I think sometimes we, we don't understand uh, the role that God wants us to, pl to play. A lot of Christians basically, are, their mentality is, Lord, help me get through this life. Help me deal with my stuff. Lord, help us with this. We need a new house. We need a new job. We need this. We need that. We need the other thing. And we live on that realm. And it's almost like uh, professional begging. But God has something else in mind for us. And I found it uh, to be very, very encouraging to me. But I've, I, looking at the world around us right now, I see something. Even in the churches, I see it. There's three words that come to mind. Unsettled, vulnerable, and afraid. These three words describe far too many of us in this time in space. And while the world wrestles with a wide number of issues without easy answers, it's my contention that the world is being brought to a spiritual precipice of sorts that will participate, that will precipitate, pardon me, pardon me a, a worldwide awakening of mammoth proportions. Scripture talks about this. I have to believe that all this unsettledness that's going on is preparing people's hearts it's making us needy inside in places we've never been needy before. And God is the one and the only one, I might add, that can fulfill those needs. The chaos that we're living through right now is, in essence, a clash of kingdoms. It's light versus darkness. It's good versus evil. And ultimately, it's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. This ancient enemy of God and mankind will continue to cause devolvement in the unredeemed toward corruption, violence, and tyranny. Conversely, though, the children of God will show the fruits of God's kingdom, which are righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. My purpose this morning is to help us embrace one of the processes through which God is training us for the incredible season ahead. As we successfully transit this dark season of human history, his purpose is that we literally shine as lights in a dark place. Heath has been bringing forth a, a message the last couple of weeks that's talked about that very thing. 
And I can assure you this, you and I, the kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer that the world is seeking. The Lord is not sending angels to complete this task. He's sending you and me. And if we're in the same shape as the world around us, yeah, we can relate. You bet we can. But God causes us to rise above that, to be like light in a dark place. And I can tell you for sure that <laughs> light is conducive to recovery. Light is conducive to people that feel lost and hopeless. And when they see somebody else living above the circumstances that we're all facing, they're drawn to that. And they begin to, they begin to ask questions. Why do I not have that same sense? Why do I not have that same strength? And God is giving an answer. He's putting it on Main Street. Um, Romans chapter 5 is an amazing, amazing chapter. And I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles, your devices, whatever you might have today. And I want to show you some things here that hopefully will help you transit through the times that we're going through and beyond. It's not just a matter of getting through this. It's a matter of being the witness that the Lord has had in mind. Verse 17 of, um, of uh, Romans 5 is an amazing verse. Let me read it to you. It says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Christ Jesus. Therefore, as though, as though one, one, through one, one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, the one man's righteous act, free gift, will come to all, resulting in the justification of life. I love that. You and I are called to reign in life. Now, that may, may present a problem. It may present a challenge to most of us to think of ourselves as having ability to reign in life. And the circumstances we're going through currently would cause us to wonder if that's even possible at times. I've been really disheartened in even traveling this last, uh, this last month. I, I went through Dubai, which is probably one of the most prosperous places on the planet. And I saw the fear and the hopelessness in the eyes of just multitudes and multitudes of people. Even in that place where Money is not really a problem. I can tell you this, that there is something happening on planet Earth, and God is really tenderizing hearts, and he wants you and I to be a big part of the end-time harvest. We know that it's coming. Scripture teaches that. And so many of us are basically afraid of the end times. We're, we're afraid of what's coming upon the Earth, but I want to tell you what, we're... we're where difficulty abounds, grace much more abounds. And God gives us the grace to meet the need of the moment if we learn to appropriate it. We're going to talk about this. So the what that God is interested in is you and me reigning in life. The how is told to us in the first five verses. I've taught on this before here, and, and I, I don't like to go over things too many different times, but this is one that's really appropriate today, and I hope you'll stick with me. This is something that will change your heart. It says, therefore, verse 1, chapter 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a status that's changed once we become a believer. Up until then, we're, we're on the other team. 
But now, having received grace and received the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with him. So our peace with him is established through that relationship. Verse 2, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What, the, what this is to me is, is an entry point. This is a way we understand how we get beyond where we are, how we get beyond a simple salvation experience into a place where we're appropriating grace for the things that we're going through. Grace is a gift. When you look at the, the gifts of the Spirit in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they're called graces. They're abilities that are given. And God gives these things. They're not native to us. And he gives them to us so that we can function as kingdom citizens and actually become those who reign in life. But we have to access this grace. Access is a powerful word. I love this word. And it literally means to bring a ship to landing by stages. And I, I, I'm aware of how that works. I've been around the ocean quite a little bit. And, and one of the times when I, when I got acquainted with the idea that I'll share with you now I was ministering out of British Columbia on uh, many, many months of the year. And I lived in Vancouver, and we would transit over on the ferry boats to uh, Vancouver Island to Victoria and minister up and down the island there. And every time I went across there, it was, it was interesting because the ferry boats are huge. They're like a cruise ship, basically. Uh, there'd be several hundred cars on there. There would be tractor trailers on there, and sometimes even uh, trains would be on there. And so these guys, when they dock these boats, it's really treacherous water up there, a lot of current and a lot of wind coming through that channel there between uh, Vancouver Island and, and the mainland of British Columbia. And so docking one of those boats so that the cars could get off safely was a trick. And what they did was they basically built a series of pylons in a V shape that was, was leading to uh, the, the entry point or the exit point where the cars would drive on and off of that ship. And so what the captains would do, they're fighting a lot of current, and they're fighting a lot of wind to dock that boat. But what happens is they just nudge, nudge that boat into that V, and, and they try and drive straight to that landing, but they never make it. They're always bumping into those pylons. But those pylons are designed in such a way that they will push that boat back into the proper position. And so many times they would start in there and they would bang into that first one and then they would correct and then they'd bang into the second one and they'd bang into the third one and boom, 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 boom. And finally they're snugged up. The point I'm trying to make is that no one's perfect. You may think I can make it through this thing. I can do this. I can, I can do what the Lord wants me to do. And you may run into an obstacle. But let me just say, that's not time to back up. That's not the time to quit. That's not the time to second-guess yourself. It's the time to keep nudging your way toward home. People quit sometimes on the edge of victory. People don't think they can make it from here to there. They've seen others fail. But I want to tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to help you come home and you can access the grace you need for the situation you're facing. It is an amazing thing, guys. And let me just tell you this. When you walk in the Spirit, when you walk with the Lord, He's not just calling you to do the things you can do by yourself. 
He's calling you into places where when something gets accomplished, everybody knows it wasn't you. Huh? If your vision is something you can do, your vision's too small. If your concept of faith and walking with God is something you can do, you got your little, your little devotions, you got your little this, you got your little that, you know the, the steps you have to make to be called a good Christian. Let me tell you, God's going to call you to do some things you cannot do that maybe you didn't even want to do. This church is here because God asked me to do something I did not want to do. I had a really good opportunity where I was. I'll tell you something, I wouldn't trade this experience as tough as it's been, as awful as it's been at times, as wonderful as it's been at other times, I wouldn't trade it for anything. When God invites you to do something, you're going to need some grace. But I'm here to tell you today, you can access that grace if you keep pushing toward that goal. If you keep pushing and you're going to run into obstacles, but it will bounce you back into place if you just keep your way through it and don't give up. Um, one of the things I want to mention, and I wrote this down during worship today because I hadn't addressed this, but let me just say this. If you misinterpret the obstacles in your life as God rejecting you or, or somehow you're not important enough for God to help you, or you maybe feel like God has, has forgotten you. Let me just say, if you misinterpret the obstacles that are in your way when you're obeying God, you might find yourself mad at God. You might find yourself getting cold in your heart. You know, the scriptures tell us that in this particular season of life before Jesus comes, that the love of many will wax cold. And if we let obstacles keep us from our destination, if we let obstacles stop us in our tracks, believe me, if you misinterpret and say, God's not hearing my prayers, God doesn't really care about me, he cares about other people, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin or whatever it is that stops you, you will misinterpret God's invitation to access grace. And many people have. But I trust it won't be any of us. So just remember that when you're going through some trials and, and you think you're obeying God and suddenly you find yourself running into stuff you did not anticipate or that you don't have any answers for, the Lord can help you with it. You know, considering this pathway that Paul laid out in Romans, we get the strong impression that we are not going to be exempted from going through difficulties on the road to spiritual maturity. To illustrate this, let's take a brief look at Jesus' discipleship program for the team who would be responsible for carrying the gospel to the world after his resurrection. It's literally a roller coaster ride of incredible highs interspersed with disillusioning or even devastating lows. The amazing takeaway for me is that, we, as we will see, the disciples undoubtedly experienced dramatic spikes of emotion in the process, while Jesus, on the other hand, transited through the same experiences with calm assurance. That's the, that's the goal. You know, Jesus didn't get fired up and get high, you know, as, as a kite when, when the miracles happened. He just stayed on an even keel. But he stayed on the same emotional level when bad things were happening. And you know something? That speaks. 
That speaks of someone who is reigning in life. That speaks of someone who's not being rocked by everything and having to readjust. They're not a different person on the good days as they are on the bad days. They're the same. They're the same. Because they're not drawing their their self-worth, they're not drawing their enthusiasm from things going on around them. And they are hard to shake because they have a deep-seated understanding of who they are, what they're about, and who's behind them. There's a whole big difference there. Uh, the, the illustrations that I'm talking about today, you can find them in Matthew 13, 54 uh, through 14, 36, or Mark chapter 6, 7 through 56, or John 6, 1 through 21, if you wanted to study them all out. It's all about the same few days. And for the sake of time, I'll just tell the story as we go through here. There are several things that happen that are, that are amazing to these guys. Number one, Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. He's teaching in his own home synagogue, and the people in his town turn him away. After he's been doing all these great miracles other places, in his own hometown, he's rejected. Anybody have a family that doesn't quite get you? That's the way it is sometimes. Closer to home you are, you're too common to be anything God could use. Number one, he was rejected at Nazareth. His disciples saw that. I want you to think about that. If Jesus gets rejected, what hope do we have? Next, Jesus sends these guys out with that in mind, with that experience, most recent, he sends them out two by two to minister to people. They've never been out by themselves before. And they've seen Jesus be rejected by his own people. How much confidence do you think was birthed in them because of that? But he sends them out to minister. The next thing that happens is the most famous religious personality in all of Israel before Jesus Christ was John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist is executed by the wicked king Herod in the most hideous of ways and for the most hideous of reasons. And these guys are thinking, my goodness, if, if the man that Jesus said was the greatest prophet born of women is going to be treated like this, how is it going to go for us? They, they had no idea how they were going to transit this. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were people that didn't have any kind of reputation at all anyway. And Jesus called them to represent him to the world. And they see John the Baptist has been beheaded. When they come back, they report to Jesus what happened when they were out ministering. And lo and behold, they had a high time out there because demons were cast out, people were healed, and multitudes came to Christ. And they were able to report that. They said, look what happened. And so they were high, but when they got back, it's possible that that's the time they found out about John. It's hard to tell from the way the chronology of the scriptures works there. But Jesus says, listen, guys, we haven't even had time to eat. We need to go and rest. And so he takes them on a journey across the Sea of Galilee and up into the more arid regions on the, on the west side there. And it's hilly country and it's filled with grass, but not much else. And they, they go there to get away, to pray, to talk, to kind of reboot. And as they arrive on the shore, they find this teeming crowd the, the, the record of that day is this, that they fed 5,000 men. Didn't count all the rest of the people that were there. 
probably somewhere in the vicinity of 15,000 people would be, a, would be a good estimate. Most of the commentators would agree with that. And so they find themselves not having the time to rest, and they're forced into a situation that is literally going to tax everything they've got. And Jesus sits down and teaches. He, he heals people. All the good stuff happens that day. It's a great day. And the disciples are anticipating that they're going to have to end the meetings and let people go because there's no place to stay. There's no place to get food. And Jesus, it says in one of the Gospels, he knew what he would do. He let them face a problem for which they had no resources. Anybody here know anything about that? And we panic. We try and fix it ourselves. And they were looking in the crowd to see if anybody had food that they could share. And all they found was a, was a kid with an overprotective mother. And they had five little, five little pita bread, uh, loaves of bread. They're not loaves, they're just little flatbreads. And, and, and two small fish, and probably St. Peter's fish. They're just about hand size or slightly bigger. They still catch them today on, in the Sea of Galilee. And that's all, that's all there was. And, there, and one of the disciples said, well, what is this among so many? There's a cliche we hear all the time, little is much when God's in it. I don't know why the Lord uses a little. Why didn't he just have angels deliver manna or something like that? But he wants us to know, he wants us to know that in that moment, what little you've got is enough in his hands. Jesus said, make them sit down in fifties and hundreds. Bring me the food. He looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. And then, this was amazing, he broke that and gave each disciple a small piece. I, I, you know, we're talking about maybe a double handful of food, full of food at the most. But he takes that and he breaks it and he distributes it to his disciples. Little chunk. How would you have liked to have been the disciple that took it from Jesus and then turned around and saw the need? And it's in your hands. And what am I going to do with this? I mean, what power do I have to, who's going to get it? It's not a matter of how many can get it. It's just who's going to get this because this is a mouthful. But as they gave what they had, somehow or other, it materialized. And as they gave it to people in the crowd, it probably materialized in their hands also until 12,000 to 15,000 people, make yourself happy with the number, Twelve to 15,000 people have eaten all they can stand or all they want. And then Jesus says, okay, go pick up the, 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 the remaining and so 12 men that couldn't see a possibility of feeding 12 to 15,000 people with a handful of food march into the crowd and come back laden with 12 full baskets. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be fired up. <laughs> I mean, I would be shocked. I would, and, and here's the other thing. Jesus' fame was so much and so powerful that the word was circulating in that crowd that day. We need to make him king. We need to, we need to take him and make him king. And Jesus knew this. 
So what did Jesus do on this moment when the disciples were reveling in their part in this whole thing? Because the glory that was on Jesus was also upon them. People were looking at these people and saying, oh, these guys must be so awesome. Look what they've done. They, they, they gave me a, a handful of fish and a handful of bread, and, and I turned around and it multiplied. Unbelievable, unbelievable. The buzz was crazy. We've never been to a meeting like that. I don't care how, how good you've had it, or I don't care what you've seen or who, who you've heard preach. You've never been in a day like that. And the disciples were right there. They were part of it. Those miracles flowed through their hands. There was no feeling like that on the planet. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Guys, get in the boat and go to the other side. No time to, to revel in what they've accomplished. No time to, to, to share the glory that Jesus had. No time to do any of that. He pushed them away. Get away from this. And then he sent the crowd home and he went to the mountain because he knew what they had in mind and he was not going to be made king by man. But here's the thing. Do you think those disciples were in the will of God when they got in that boat? Yeah. Jesus personally forced them into the boat. Go to the other side, guys. And he went to the mountain to pray. And it says he's on the mountain praying. And a storm arose on, on the sea, Galilee, Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is 696 feet below sea level. The downdrafts from the mountains surrounding it are ferocious sometimes. And that, that little body of water, which is pretty good size, but that body of water can be whipped into a frenzy in a very short period of time. That happened that day. And Jesus was up on the mountain and he says he saw them straining in the rowing. They rowed for three or four miles. They rowed for hours, probably blown off course, but in the will of God. I want you to get on board with me here. Many people misinterpret unfortunate circumstances, obstacles, frustrations, and even danger. They misinterpret that I cannot possibly be in the will of God if that's happening. I think this is a good that we can see this right here. You can be square in the middle of the will of God and have a life-threatening experience. You can and many times we lose strength or we lose faith because we figure somehow we missed it and now I'm reaping the, the results of my bad decision. Well, that happens too sometimes. So it's important that we find the will of God before we do major things. But here's what I love about this. And this is where the Lord really spoke to me some, some weeks ago. They're out there in that boat and Jesus doesn't come right away. He knows the situation. There's something happening in those men in that moment that can't happen any other way. Any idea they had that they had anything to do with that miracle is now gone. They're doubting themselves. They may be even doubting God. And they're out there literally screaming out in anger and fear. And during the darkest part of the night, the fourth watch, that's the period of time from 3 to 6 a.m. After these guys have been fighting it since dusk, he comes. Now Mark's gospel says that he would have passed by. But they saw him somehow in the dark. The dark is hard to see very far in, in the ocean when you've got that kind of wave action going on because it throws up a mist. You can't see very far. 
And they, they saw something. And they assumed the worst. It's a ghost. They assumed it was a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And then Jesus said, it's I, be not afraid. I think he's speaking that over culture today. We've got a storm going on. All kind of storms. All kind of crazy controversies. All kind of stuff that's dividing people. Let me tell you, he's, he's walking in the waves. Scripture always talks about the waves raging as an as a, as a, uh, illustration of what happens in society sometimes. It's happening now. But Jesus is coming. Jesus is walking in our midst. And he, they cried out in fear, first of all. And then he said, it is I, be not afraid. If I was to suggest to you today that the Lord is not trying to figure out what to do with this crisis... That what looks impossible to man to straighten things out is not impossible for him at all. And rather than crying out in fear, we ought to be acknowledging in joy the one that's walking nearby. The next part of this is what the Lord really, really talked to me about. In that boat were tax collectors, professional fishermen, probably the biggest number. Tax collector would have no idea how to get out of this mess. The Coast Guard's not coming, by the way. There's not another boat out there that can help. The kind of boats these guys were in were these large, lumbering, heavy boats that could not be easily maneuvered. And these fishermen and these non-fishermen are clinging white-knuckled to the side of that boat just hoping to survive. And when Jesus came near... They all had one thing on mind, get us out of this mess, except for one. And that one, that one, Peter, I mean, Peter was audacious, he was impulsive, but he seemed to always get it right when it counted. He said, Lord, I want to stand where you're standing. I want to walk on these waves that we're so afraid of. Can I come? He asked permission. And Jesus didn't rebuke him, didn't say, you arrogant guy. What are you thinking, Peter? Walk on the water? I'm the Messiah. I walk on the water. Jesus said, come. Now, whatever we might want to say about Peter, we got to understand two things. Number one, is he knew better than the rest of them what would happen if he stepped out of that boat. Gravity was going to make sure of it. He'd been out there all of his life. He had seen people drowned. He'd seen people shipwrecked. He'd seen people, friends and family die, more than likely, in that body of water. But that day, he wasn't walking on water. He was walking to Jesus. And he stepped out of that boat And gravity was suspended, and he walked until he took his eyes off Jesus and started looking at the waves. And in that moment, he sank, and he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord reached down and dragged dragged him up out of the water, and they walked back to the boat together. Can I just say that most times there's failure and success in one trip, 
There's no guarantee that you're going to get it right the first time, but if you fall, if you falter, if you lose faith, call out to him. He understands your frame. He knows. He was tempted in every way like you are, yet without sin. So that he could be a faithful high priest to us who are touched by any kind of trouble. What good news that is. What you're going through, he gets it. I've thought about this many times. I don't know if Jesus hadn't been made flesh, if he really could have been faithful in the high priest area to us. How would he have known what we're going through? I don't know that that would have been possible. Maybe in theory, but you know, my pastor used to say, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with a theory. You'll always know because you were there. And Jesus has been here. He has tasted what you've tasted he has been tempted by the things you're tempted by. He's been tested by the things that you're tested by. And he passed the test so that now he can help you get through yours. When I think about Peter, he, he is the man that I think we should model right now. I think we should be those that don't just cower in fear continually. I am so grieved every time I walk in the grocery store and I see people who have been taught these last 12 or 14 months, whatever it is now, to look away. Just look away. Just look down. We've been, we've, our hearts have been masked, not just our faces. Our hearts have been masked so that people are living in fear. They don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. They're afraid of each other now. You know what? I get it but I don't get it. My head gets it, but my heart can't stand it. I'm telling you what, God wants us to be the people that say, God, I want to walk on this situation. I want to stand on this situation. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have, have to tread water here. I want to stand on this situation just like you do. And God is in the mood to make that happen. Believe you me, he never rebuked Peter for that. You know, and Peter, he didn't always win. He didn't always make the right decisions. I remember one time when Jesus was going to the cross very quickly, Peter says, I will die with you. And he meant it. But Jesus says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. You're going you're gonna to deny me before the rooster crows to wake up Jerusalem tomorrow. You're going to do it. Peter couldn't believe it. In his flesh, he was bold. Whoever cut the ear off of Malchus, the high priest's uh, head, up on the Garden of, uh, Garden of Gethsemane that night later on, I, I'm guessing it was probably Peter. You know? And uh, well, whoever it was, he's the kind of guy that would do that. He thought he could handle it. He thought he was the man. He was, he was being bequeathed the leadership. But I tell you what, we find out, don't we, that in the crush of the moment, our strength isn't enough. It isn't enough. And I want to encourage you today that Jesus is walking near. Whatever your situation is, whatever the waves are that, that, are, that are rocking your boat, I want to encourage you today that you calling out to him and say, Lord, make me stand in the midst of this. Let me stand where you stand. 
He's not, he's not worried. Jesus is not biting his fingernails to the quick looking at what's happening on the earth, believe me. He's just fine. And he wants you and I to reflect that same kind of thing to the world around us. You know, later in life, Peter would write these words. First Peter 4, 12, 13, and 19, he would say the following. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Therefore, let those that suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Isn't that something? That while we're suffering, we need to commit our souls to him and do good. You, you realize that, that almost all of the New Testament that we've got was written by men incarcerated for their faith. And I don't mean just languishing in Greene County Jail. I'm talking about places that you couldn't hardly survive living in for a few months. The Mamertine Prison in Rome was basically a cesspool. Three levels of it. And Paul wrote from there. He wrote from house arrest, chained to a soldier. All of these men gave their lives ultimately. They knew what they were talking about, but they did it in joy. They talked all the time about their joy. You read the New Testament, it's a book of joy. It's a book of sacrifice, yes, but it's a book of joy. And in America, we've been sheltered from a lot of that. But now we're seeing the teeth of the enemy bared toward the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's nation of Israel. You got to understand, that's not political. That is spiritual. Because it makes no sense. Logically speaking, you could never level an accusation against either one of that, those groups. But people do. You know, they don't want to let the truth stand in the way of a good story. One of the presidential advisors in Obama's administration, following the dictates of a book by Saul Alinsky called Rules for Radicals, really the marching orders of the far left. That book was dedicated to Lucifer, the first radical. And the principle he always talked about is, if you find a need, don't fix it. Use it. People are manipulating us today. People are causing us to be angry today. They're causing us to be very, very frustrated today. They're taking advantage in many ways. And they talk about fixing it, but they're using it instead. Understand this. Understand we're locked in a war that was predicted. Understand that we can't fix it by bullets and guns. Understand that we can, we can win many to righteousness through the darkness that's come upon the earth. When I was a young college student in the middle of the, of the uh, revival that was happening in those days, it was a phenomenal revival. Over two million young people were saved during that period of time. And one night, I was in the prayer room. Uh, I've talked about this vision a little bit before this, this moment, but it's relevant here. 
And I remember about 2 a.m., I was the only person in that, in that prayer room at that moment, and I, I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what's it going to be like in the end? And I mean, immediately the Lord spoke in such a way that I had no doubt it was him. He said, in the end, the black is going to get blacker, and the white is going to get whiter, and there will be no gray. And that's good news. Because many of us have lived in a world that kind of got gray. But I'll tell you where it's going. It's going to be so perverse on the one side and so holy and righteous on the other side that there's going to be no question which team you're on. And then I had a vision at that moment. It's one of the few I've had, but it was so graphic, so graphic. I've never forgotten it. It's as clear to me today as it was the day it happened. And in that vision, I was in a helicopter with a pilot, and we were flying through a cityscape. And I, there was, it was beautiful. The, the buildings were beautiful. It reminded me of Houston with the glass and brass kind of buildings that were arrayed along the streets. And I, we were flying along. I could see the reflection of the helicopter. I could see myself. I could see the pilot. And we were flying along, and I'm thinking to myself, my, what man has accomplished? This is incredible. And, we, and I, one after another, just beautiful structures. And, and we turned and went down another avenue, and, and on the right side, far down the street, was something that was an anomaly. It didn't look like it belonged there. It, it kind of looked like the Eiffel Tower, to be honest. It was an old tower. And I thought to myself, they need to tear that down and build one of these buildings. It's just, that's out of place and as I said that, I noticed refraction, uh, refraction of light coming in. I, I turned, and, and I saw the tops of the buildings that were just shaking and going like this. Later on, when I lived in California, I actually saw that kind of thing happen. That was exactly what I saw in the vision. And pretty soon, a chunk or two started falling off of those beautiful buildings, and pretty soon, it was shaken to the point that there was no more buildings. The buildings were piles of rubble that looked like Dresden, Germany in World War II, or perhaps London. Streets cleared, but miles of, I mean, piles of uh, debris. And then out of the debris started coming like ants, and I looked closely, and it was people coming out of those, those structures and those systems, probably. And they were filing into the streets, and they were all going one direction. And I looked in that direction. There was only one thing left, and it was that tower. And they were filing into that tower, and no matter how many filed in, there was more coming, and they were filing in. And I'm thinking to myself, what is that? And then the vision ended. I said, Lord, Lord, what is that? And nothing. I went to bed. Woke up the next morning, picked up my Bible to do my daily Bible reading. And first verse, the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and are safe. Friends, that's happening. It may not be buildings falling down, but I will promise you this. Things are crumbling in many places. Structures are being dismantled in many places. Governments are going to be falling in many places. There's going to be norms that have been norms forever that are going to be changed. And from these systems and from that debris, there are going to be thousands and thousands of people, just like the Bible said, in the valley of decision. They're watching. They're watching out of the cover of darkness. They're seeing how we behave. People around us are saying, why aren't you as upset as I am? 
Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. I certainly hope not. But here's the thing. James said this, Jesus, half-brother, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Anybody there yet? I'm not. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. If we can follow the trail left for us by these men, as well as Jesus himself, we may well find out that the people whom Jesus loves and died for have been watching, as I said, from the cover of darkness. I suspect that Jesus is still giving permission to those who want to walk on the waves. Remember this pattern, trials, perseverance or endurance, character, and then hope. Hope is the substance of things It is the substance of things that builds faith. We want to go right to faith. First, we got to get some hope. And remember this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He will not test us beyond our ability to withstand, but with every trial, he will make a way of escape. Would you stand? You know, I, I almost envisioned myself this morning being like a, a cheerleader or a coach. Coach is something I was well used to many years ago, and I remember coming off the floor many times in a basketball game feeling like we were not going to do well. And I had a coach in high school especially, Coach Mosley. He believed in us more than we did. He pushed us beyond what we could do. Not everybody on the team got a scholarship because that man taught them, taught us to come out of defeat and find victory. That's kind of the heart I have this morning for us. I don't want to see anybody walking with their head down. I don't want to see anybody believe in the press. I don't want to see anybody literally being dictated to by circumstance because God has ordained that we should reign in life. Not being subject to things, but being victors in things. There's going to be some bumps. There's going to be some pain. But there's going to be some victory. Anybody here today need a little victory? Let me see your hands. I need it. Man, I need it. And it's there to be taken. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus today, I pray that you will encourage, that you will strengthen, that you will lift up the hands that hang down, that you will strengthen the feeble knees. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit in such a way that we would rejoice even when we come up with a situation we don't have an answer for. That we'd rejoice because we know you do. And you've trusted us enough to put us in this situation where we can be the answer. God, I pray today that you will literally you will literally lift up spirits in this place today. Hearts that have been weighed down. Minds that have been troubled over much. And I pray today, God, you let us know that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Always is the case until the end of the age. We bless you today. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. Go give the devil a headache this week, can you?